Welcome to the Officer Media Group Roll Call Podcast. Officer Roll Call is meant to inform and entertain. Now, let's get into this episode. This is Paul Peluso. I'm the editor of Officer Magazine. And welcome to this latest episode of the Officer Roll Call Podcast. As always, I'm joined by Frank Borelli, the editorial director of Officer Media Group. How's it going, Frank? Morning, Paul. Doing pretty good. Hey, good. Well, today we're going to talk about training and basically uh, diff- different um, different roles that training plays, uh, different things that departments have to keep in mind and different trends that are out there when it comes to the different types of training that are needed. So if first, Frank, you want to just talk about some of the uh, the trends that you're seeing what departments are kind of focusing on more now than they may have a couple of years ago. Well, you know, it's kind of funny because with uh, the the last couple of years where we had the whole defund the police and, and police reform, and we're still seeing a lot of political push for that, uh, we're seeing more generic awareness training out here in a lot of ways. Uh, we're seeing a lot of de-escalation training. We're seeing a lot of conversation control or what we used to call verbal judo training. Um, it's still, it's all vitally important. I think if, if some politicians had their way, uh, officers, you know, there, there's an old saying, Paul, and it says, I'd rather be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. And, and I think that if some of the politicians had their way, they would make our police officers gardener, gardeners and expect them to go out and fight a war when it's necessary. The reality is we never know when the war is going to come to us. We never know when violence is going to come to us. We never know when conflict is going to come to us. We absolutely need to have the skills to de-escalate it and negotiate if we can and if that'll work. But if that doesn't work, at the end of the day, we, we have to fight people in the handcuffs. And you don't do that as a gardener. You do that as a warrior. Um, so we really need to keep a balance. But the big push lately, obviously, for training is de-escalation, reform, awareness, diversity and inclusion. Everything that feeds into uh, recognizing that we're all human, I think, is the best way to say it. And as always, you know, budgets are a a big deal uh, for departments. And like you said, trying to get it across to the lawmakers, the powers that be that hold the purse strings um, for for a lot of these departments. How can they, um, I, I guess, frame training into what they need? and be able to ask for it in a way that they they get that stuff for you know the new facilities that they need or the new equipment that they need or or just to be able to send officers to d- different training that may be um funded training that may be out of that jurisdiction or w- within the confines of the facility you know it's it's kind of funny is a lot of our training budget when we talk about it doesn't fall underneath a line item for training uh, it might be under equipment. It might be under facilities, like you mentioned. Um, it, when it's under training, it's usually one of the first things that's sacrificed because the people who do hold the purse strings don't have an appreciation for the relationship between increased training and decreased liability. They figure we pay insurance, insurance covers liability. So there's no real relation to training budget there. And what they don't understand is if you increase your training budget by double, you can decrease your liability potential anyway by quadruple uh, you know the investment's always worth the return and I, I had this conversation with our news editor Joe Vince is you know, when you 
are paying for training, when you have a training line item, let's say a few years back when President Obama was in office, there was a big, big push for body cams on every officer, and they put billions of dollars behind it. If they took that much money today, if the government would issue a grant today and put out the same amount of money, um, I think it worked out to a little more than $5,000 per officer. And that is huge for a lot of agencies. I mean, a lot of agencies, especially the smaller ones, uh, you know, $5,000 might be their whole training budget because they do all their in-service in-house. They have just enough money to buy just enough ammo for firearms training. Um, they have just enough money to just barely cover the minimums and the mandates. Um, and there's no money. I know an agency where the technology officer puts all of his own travel expenses to go to other places because the agency will not pay for him to go out of state to train. And he's, he's paid out of his own pocket to be to other states and even go to Canada for technology training. So he can find out what other places are doing and then adapt it and bring it home and see what works for the agency. Um, there's never going to be enough money for new facilities when they're needed. And, the, and the, the requirements for those change. I mean, when the EPA can tell you what kind of ventilation you have to have in um, and then how much lead you can or can't have uh, and what kind of trapping resources you have to have. And I'm not complaining about the EPA, but all that plays into the cost of a new training facility. Um, when, when you consider if you have one officer in training, another officer has to cover the shift on the street. So, it's not just the cost of the officer's salary to go to training. It's the cost of two, one in training, one for replacement. Travel expenses are attached. There's there's just never enough money for training. And the people who do control those purse strings never seem to understand that. They think it could be sacrificed. So the chief or the, the training commander, whoever it is that's going into those budget battles, really needs to be able to justify, uh, one, the value, the, the ROI, of training beyond minimum standards and two, the value of seeing what other agencies and other regions are doing because so much of operations is actually regional, but there are some great best practices that are being done in other states and other regions. And, and there's, it's hard to quantify a dollar value on that. Uh, absolutely. Training should be fought for in every budget. When it comes to types of training, um, what would you put the most importance on when it comes to you know tactical training um firearms training you know, training with uh you know of course technology training is, is a part of it now uh for officers but what would you not what the you know not necessarily what the politicians or the higher-ups would would put on you know, the emphasis on right now but what would you put the emphasis on for officers well you know i just made the statement i i'd, I'd rather be a warrior yeah. in a garden than a gardener yeah. in a war um, and, and I would prioritize officer survival training, um, the awareness and, and, and the martial skills that all go around that. And I know that sounds harsh or cold blooded and, and I'm trying to make officers violent at the outset, but that's absolutely not the case because we're talking about a defensive posture. Um, you know, officers don't need to go on the offense until they've been on the defense or somebody's trying to put them on the defense. Somebody else has to be aggressive first. Uh, officers don't normally initiate that. You know, it starts with a, a resistance of arrest or a foot chase or something. It happens with something that makes the officers have to execute this force. So I would focus on that first. Um, and then I would follow on with 
all the laws that control when, where, and how, and who, um, all of the concerns about special populations or differing minority groups. Um, you know, a long time ago, it's one of the funniest things I'll never forget. Uh, we, we used to have a high Asian population in, in a certain area I worked, and in the summertime, they'd be barefoot. And if you had a high-risk group and you were going to affect a lot of arrests, you want to put them in a position of disadvantage, so you put them on their knees with their hands behind their head. Well, this one particular group of Asians absolutely refused to do that. They would not get on their knees and put their hands behind their head for two reasons. One, because they considered it rude to show you the soles of their feet. They considered it disrespectful. And two, because in their country, that was a position of execution. That's a position police in their country put them in to shoot them in the back of the head. So they just would not do this. And we had to learn that. We had to, we had to be made aware of the concern. So after you get all of the martial skills necessary uh, trained in, all of the laws controlling that trained in, then you really need to get your officers aware of the community they serve. Um, you know, like I said, the special populations, the, the different orientations of, of how things are perceived. You know, there's so much that goes into training. Dealing with people is our number one skill. The technology that supports it's great. Officer risk mitigation through data management is fantastic. Predictive policing through data data mining is is great. But at the end of the day, none of the technology handcuffs a bad guy. None of the technology holds the hand of a, of a parent who's lost a child in a car accident. Um, you know, none of the technology performs the human functions. And the officers have to be trained in all of the human functions first, and then all the controls on that second. And we really need to emphasize, uh, and, and there's going to be a whole bunch of people send me nasty emails when I say this, we have to emphasize compassion. We have to emphasize in our training that while we do a job and we have to be coldly professional in how we do our job, we have to remember with some measure of warmth that we're dealing with human beings and even the worst of them might have uh, something going on that, that contributes to that, that we can impact beyond a way of just a, a cold arrest and, and, and transport and processing. Sometimes our agencies are really hurt by a lack of discretion. Uh, you know, and you can take the simplest thing. I pulled over an elderly woman once she was in her late eighties and she was driving and she had a taillight out and her tags were expired. And I pulled her over. And when I got up to her car, she was just crying crocodile tears. And it took me a minute just to calm her down to ask her why she was crying. And she said, number one, she'd never, ever been pulled over. And number two, you know, her husband was going to be so upset. And then she wanted to know why I pulled her over. And I told her the taillight and the tag. And she said, oh, my tags aren't expired. The sticker's in the glove compartment. Okay. Give me the sticker. I'll put it on your license plate. And I did. Now, I could have just written the ticket for the tag being, you know, displaying a, a, a expired tag. And I could have written a equipment repair order for the taillight being out. But through the use of discretion, I was able to have a little bit more positive impact in that particular woman's day. Um, that, that type of discretion is being taken away from our police officers. And with less discretion, we have less power to be peacekeepers. Uh, we, we have more of a focus on enforcement efforts and, and revenue generation. And that's just not the right focus for our training to take. Sorry, I'll get off the soapbox now. No, no, that, that's all good information, Frank. Uh, I, I did want to talk about um, new training, um, new training tools 
that are out there. I know you just um, wrote an article that'll be in the May June issue of Officer Magazine about um, T4E training uh, weapons. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know that you uh, had some experience um, uh, testing these. Yeah, so I've been a um, force on force scenario instructor for going on 30 years now. And there are uh, several good tools out there. The best ones um, match form and function of the actual duty weapons we use when it comes to lethal force use. And I was able to test the T4E uh, shotgun. They have a pump action 68 caliber uh, operated by compressed air, um, the shotgun. And then uh, at the moment, the Smith & Wesson M&P 2.0s, again, this fires uh, it's from a compressed air um system that fires a 43 caliber it can be paintball it can be powder ball or it can be rubber ball um, depending on whether or not you can make a mess or you absolutely mandate the markings the ball the rubber ball is a 43 caliber rubber balls come at least in the orange and blue and what we do is we use blue for good guys orange for bad guys um, the weapons the mp 2.0 absolute identical fit and function uh, as a smith and wesson mp 2.0 uh, you can reload the magazines. The magazines hold eight rounds a piece of the 43 caliber, and each magazine holds a compressed cartridge of air, CO2 cartridge. And you get about, out of a single cartridge, you can get about 40 shots, and they're accurate out to about 20 feet, uh, which is inside of seven yards is going to be your, your average engagement distance anyway. Um, they hurt like heck to get hit with. They do leave a mark. They, they have a pain penalty, so if you're practicing poor tactics, you get shot, you know it. Uh, you can tell if it's a good guy or a bad guy that shot you, depending on whether it's blue or red marks. Um, and if you're in an environment where you can't use the paintball markers, uh, you can use the powder or the rubber ball. And you still get the pain um, penalty if you mess up. And with the powder, once you get a powder mark, but it doesn't mess up uh, if you're in a school building or a business building or whatever. It doesn't leave paint any, everywhere. It's powder that can just be vacuumed up. Um, really good tools for training force on force. Uh, judgmental decision-making and dynamic uh, environments you we need to train that Zuschel versus city and county of denver i think in 1994 uh the court said that if your agency's not training dynamic judgment making that you're not meeting a standard so we we all need to be doing that and those uh, t4e tools are a good tool to do it with And to kind of wrap this up, I wanted to talk about a couple of uh, the articles that Lindsay Berdeman, who's who is one of our contributors um, to the magazine and also online, um, that he's written. He does a lot of really good uh, product reviews, but he does a lot of really good uh, training articles as well. Um, one of them was from last year from the August issue. Um, it's titled Get Off Me. And yep. he basically talks about uh, close quarters defense. Uh, another one that he wrote um, from the November December or, um, November December issue of Officer Magazine last year is about one handed reloading. Yep. And I I just posted one. Um, it was an online exclusive for May on shooting what rhythm and how shooters overcome a training plateau. Basically talking about different drills that law enforcement officers can practice in order to change your shooting cadence and elevate past um, a pat, elevate past the training plateau. So what I wanted to ask you, Frank, is, you know, all, all these articles that Lindsay wrote are really good. Um, it's all really good material for officers to be able to review and kind of get some insight on what they should do to change their uh, 
their training and uh, add to their training. But what kind of firearms training um, exercises and drills do you focus on? And do you think that officers should really focus on foremost? So, you know, it's, it's kind of funny you ask that. Basic marksmanship training is covered in so many places. And we talk about training it on the square range with, you know, a fixed target, a fixed uh, firing position. You train stance, grip, sight alignment, sight picture, breath control, trigger press, and follow through. Seven basic marksmanship pieces, right? Um, and then we realize we better not stand still when somebody's shooting at us. So we need to practice shooting and moving or actually moving and shooting. Um, we all should be doing wounded shooter drills. Like Lindsay talked about one hand reloading. You never know if you're going to be injured and have to reload a weapon. You still have to be able to function. Most of us don't shoot enough offhand or support hand. Um, and there's a gentleman named Sheriff Wilson, who's highly respected in the industry uh, down in Texas. And he wrote an article recently, and it, it was about knowing what you're going to train when you go to the range. So some people go to the range, and all they do is they just load magazines, and they shoot, and they're happy, and they practice basic marksmanship. But they're really not assessing their skill levels in any given particular skill. Uh, malfunction drill, as the example. When I take my wife to the range, a friend of mine has private property, has a range on the back of his property. We go there to shoot. Um and I will load her magazines. And, and Lindsay talked about using snap caps in another article. I'll load her magazines with live ammo and snap caps mixed in. So when she gets to that snap cap, there's going to be an induced malfunction. And she has to clear the malfunction and, and then get you know back on course for firing whatever string of rounds she's supposed to be firing. Um, on that particular day, we're focusing nothing but malfunction drills. And that's our that's our goal for the day is we're going to improve our proficiency with malfunction drills. There might be a different day we do nothing but go and shoot uh, reload drills. There might be a day we do nothing but do move and shoot drills. I like to go to the range and train a specific skill, and then I'll do drills with measurable time and performance, scores and, and time, so that we can see how we've improved or how we haven't. You know, is, is our training doing us any good? But just going to the range and putting rounds down range, that really, if you don't have a goal, if you don't have something you're working on, uh, targeted training, it's it's really not efficient. It's it's a waste of money. Everybody likes to go bang, sure, um, but but have a goal and and then measure that goal, measure your improvement over time. At least that's my approach. And I think Lindsay's articles, if you read about six of them, you probably get that same thing in different pieces. He's he's, he's far more eloquent than I am. So. Frank, when, when it comes to training, um, you know, departments have a certain, you know, set amount of hours that you have to reach a, as an officer. Um, but how important is to sometimes train when you're away from the job um, on your own time? Because, of course, you know, the most important thing is going being able to go home at the end of the day. Um, what what advice would you give officers when it comes to you know training, but also physical training? What can they do in, um, on their own time? So two pieces of advice here. One, make sure your training is comprehensive. And, and I mean that um, I'll focus on fitness at the moment. So I know a lot of guys like to lift. They like to, to have big muscles and be strong. And that's great. Um, I know other guys who just do endurance and they like to be able to run 10 miles. And that's great. Um, I know other guys who do nothing but ever stretch. They want lots and lots of flexibility because then there's less chance they're going to get injured. And that's great. But the best one the best training methodology is one that incorporates all three. We use strength, cardio, 
and flexibility. So I, I would encourage listeners to make sure they do all three, first and foremost. And the second thing is I would encourage all of our officers to engage in training for some type of martial sport, whether it is a form of karate or taekwondo, aikido, jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, I don't care if it's boxing or Greco-Roman wrestling. Get proficient in some combat technology uh, um, sport, some combat techniques. Uh, it is inevitable you're going to have to fight somebody into handcuffs. Know how to control the arm. Understand what joint locks are. Um, you know, let, let's not go out here and break somebody's arm because we don't know how to get their arm behind their back or how to turn them or how to control them and get them down on the ground. We need to train in these martial skills and they become uh, part of our fitness program. So uh, I would really, I really would encourage our officers. What here's, here's the thing. Everybody has a minimum number of in-service. Like you said, the goal every year at a, at a minimum you do, is to double your state mandate in Maryland. It's 21 hours. My agency goes for 40 as a minimum. We try to get every officer 40. Then you on your own time should be doing something for a couple of hours every week to increase your own proficiency. That would be my encouragement. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of the Officer Roll Call podcast. Is there anything you want to um, send the listeners off with, Frank? Nope. You know, we, we talk about all the training and we, and we talk about different things to think about. Every time I do a podcast, I end with telling people, stay safe. Doing all the training is part of staying safe, and I want them to keep that in mind, Paul. Well, as always, uh, guys, if you want to leave us a note at all, any suggestions, you can reach us at editors at officer.com and stay tuned for the next episode of the Officer Roll Call Podcast. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Officer Roll Call. Be sure to check back every two weeks for a new episode. Stay safe.